Greetings, mountain bikers. Welcome to episode number four of the MTB Jumper podcast. I feature conversations with extraordinary riders, coaches, and industry leaders. We talk about downhill, free ride, dirt jumping, slope style, park and street. We get into skill development, bikes and gear, digging and building, strength and fitness, and much, much more. I'm your host, Norman Peterson. Thanks so much for tuning in. In 1997, pro downhiller Simon Lawton helped another racer shave 20 seconds off of his runtime, and he's been coaching ever since. In this episode, Simon shares how he consistently helps all types of mountain bikers, from top-level pros to everyday riders like you and I, make massive, world-changing improvements. Simon shares detailed, granular advice that will help you improve your turns, jumps, safety, deal with fear, and much more. Okay, settle in for this powerful, fun episode and get ready to have your world rocked. Here it is, my discussion with professional coach Simon Lawton. Your, your voice in my head always works out. <laughs> yeah. Sounds haunting to me. <laughs> cool. Do you want to go over your beginnings as a, as a mountain biker? Ooh, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> uh, well, if I remember correctly, uh, we're talking about uh, 85 or so, your first bike, yes? Yeah, my first mountain bike. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, my... Uh, I, I, oh, it started I, with moto, actually. It did. It started <laughs> with moto. I mean, I think it was in second grade that I fell in love with uh, the idea of motorcycles. And wow. uh, there was a kid in, in my school who had a motorcycle, and I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I used to go up to his house and kind of watch him ride around, and occasionally he'd let me ride his bike. Well... One day at recess, he told me he was selling his motorcycle because his parents were buying him a new one. And, wow. Uh, that was kind of when I, something kind of sparked in my brain and I decided to start trying to save my pennies. So actually hooked up with a job in the cafeteria washing dishes and then uh, got a free lunch and didn't tell my parents that I was doing the dishes, you know, uh -huh. at, at school. And I, wow. I told my mom that I had to have an extra six cents every day for an extra, you know, carton of milk. And so I was saving 51 cents a day between my lunch money and my... And my uh, milk money. And then, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, and it took a long time. It took like pretty much the whole year of washing dishes and, and uh, doing that at school. And um, there was some probably like less awesome stuff that I did, like selling popsicles to a kid who wasn't allowed to have sugar. I'd sell those for two bucks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think there was even one episode that might, maybe came a little bit later where I, we were on the East Coast. And I, I think I had about $40 at that point. And... Uh, fireworks were legal there and so I, I went ahead and filled up a whole suitcase before the flight home with uh you know m80s and stuff like that amazing flew those home sold those out of my locker um, clandestine mission to get my motorcycle yeah and uh eventually i got the 120 bucks that was needed for the transaction and oh by the way my parents said i couldn't have a motorcycle so that's why <laughs> this whole thing was a clandestine mission so i uh Made the five-mile walk up to my buddy's house, made the transaction, bought the motorcycle, realized I really didn't know how to ride the motorcycle that well. I didn't have a helmet. I didn't have anything. I must have fallen, you know, four or five times on the way home and came home kind of bloodied up and quietly pushed it behind the barn, you know, turned it off and quietly pushed it behind the barn and um, came in and told my parents I'd fallen on my bicycle. Mm -hmm. And every time they'd leave the house, I would... I would you know, sneak out and train for my motocross career. Cause that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a professional motocross racer uh -huh. and, uh, maybe about, I don't know, it's hard to remember, you know, being a child, but maybe six months into that process of my training, my parents came home and caught me, uh, in the middle of a training session and, uh, <laughs> promptly went out and bought me a helmet. And so uh -huh. like, that was kind of the beginning of 
their, you know, the support they could give me. So I <laughs> Where remember, the hell did this motorcycle come from? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> How did you get the money for a motorcycle? You're nine or however however old you are in second grade. Wow. You know? Or no, I guess I was I was a little older, you know. That is uh, But serious. it was grade school. Um, That's serious determination, man. Yeah, so... At that age. Yeah, I you know, I, I knew I wanted it. And uh, so at that point, it was like my parents kind of had said, hey, you know, they dropped... $19.97 at Kmart on a helmet. This was serious stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm on. Like, this is this yeah. is my career. Yeah, and so yeah. I started training in my bedroom every night. Doing, um, I eventually worked my way up to doing like, I don't know, like a couple hundred push-ups and wow. hundreds of sit-ups. And I, I mean, I was training. I was going to be a professional motocross racer. And as time went on, I actually climbed the ranks a little bit. I, I you know, I went on to race for, um, Kawasaki amateur national support team riding eighties and got into the one twenty fives after a while, um, back in the day, but, uh, got to race against a lot of really famous guys who went on to become super, super good. I mean, they kicked my butt, but hey, at least I was at the start gate with them kind of foreshadowing of my pro downhill career. <laughs> <laughs> you get to play with the big boys, but you don't really get to ride at the same speed. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's basically how that started. And then I guess you could say that my, you know, after my motorcycle career kind of ended, I sold my motorcycle to get my first car to go to college. I knew I was going to be going to college. And so there's kind of a theme here. I got kind of got into some trouble with the law when I was 17 and lost my driver's license uh, right at the beginning of my freshman year of freshman year of college. And uh, I'd been reading like popular mechanics, um, things like that. And this is in the eighties. So seeing these mountain bikes come out that could climb any hill and do all these amazing things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember talking to my dad after I got in trouble with the law, after, I, after they un- unhandcuffed me from the desk and let my, let my dad take me back home. Oh. Um, I remember him saying, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, cause I had a job, I was in college and he's like, you know, how are you going to get to work? And I, you know, we had a little discussion about it and he agreed to help me buy my first mountain bike. Hmm. So we went to Portland and I test rode a couple bicycles and I ended up settling on a, 86 Bridgestone MB2, which was a pretty, pretty hot machine back then. I think it was on sale for about 550 bucks. Wow. And as soon as the school year ended that year, that's when I started racing cross country. I mean, really cross country was the only thing that existed at the time. There was no downhill racing, things like that. Um, I was pretty taken with the sport and uh, definitely worked hard at it after college and decided that, it, that I wasn't going to go on to graduate school um, or kind of pursue the academic um, life like I thought I might um I was going to go ahead and kind of live try to live that childhood dream of being a professional athlete and so I started training for that started racing a lot of cross country but I just I like to blame it on genetics um but I, I didn't have what it took to be <laughs> a pro cross country racer and I remember pretty distinctly my first downhill race there was a um it was state championships at Mount Hood and there was a hill climb which I actually ended up winning which is kind of funny because I can't imagine that now. Um, so I did this hill climb and it ended at the top of Mount Hood Ski Bowl. And they said, hey, we have this new event. You know, it's, it's called the downhill. We're, gonna, we're just going to race down the mountain. And I remember like taking off down the mountain. I think I flatted, got a flat tire like, a, you know, I don't know, maybe a quarter or halfway in. But I'd already caught a couple of riders. And so I was like, oh, that, that felt pretty good. And some of the spectators came down and said, wow, man, you were so fast coming down that hill. And I kind of like, hmm, maybe this is, you know, if this turns into a sport. Maybe this is something I could do. And then um, about a year later, a buddy called me and said, hey, we're going to go down to this race down in California. It's called the Mammoth Kamikaze. Would you be interested in, in, in coming down? And I said, yeah, you know, I'll come check that out. And he got my bike all set up with this 
huge mammoth gearing. I was like, what is this for? You know, like how far, how fast are we going to be going? Right. And, um, talked me into signing up for the expert class because he knew me and he'd raced and he said, you're fast. You can, you can do this. And no uh, sandbagging, no sandbagging. Yeah. Right from the start. And I think he ended up seventh and I ended up about a 10th of a second behind him in eighth place out of all the amateurs. So out wow. of maybe like, a, I think there were like a thousand amateurs back when American racing was really big back when Norba nationals were like world cups, you know? Sure. And I think I was maybe 30th or 35th overall, including the pros. And that was kind of when like a spark went off and I was like, okay, you can do this, you mm-hmm. know? That was, of course, when racing was done on fire roads. So yeah, yeah. that was a lot different than what, what it turned into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, and you raced for how long downhill? Um, I raced downhill basically from, gosh, I guess from 1991 until, I guess, my last last year of actually actively racing was probably 2010, 2011. Oh, wow. But I jumped into, you know, I jump into enduro races i just raced a pro enduro last year in south america so i still jump in at the, at, a, at a high level for me anyway um when i can but but downhill i, I finished with a few years ago i had some uh some great experiences the last few years and decided you know i'm good yeah so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, good. yeah good enough yeah cool cool and 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 minimal or no injuries uh, i've done i did well i mean i, I would say i fell much less than the average rider. I don't know if that was because I wasn't pushing hard enough. As aggressive. Yeah. Um, but I, I really feel like I've always been in touch with where my limits are and really been kind of a thoughtful rider, kind of um, able to push myself 99% and not really take it right over the edge too frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, fewer injuries probably than most riders. You know, I've separated my shoulders, dislocated a shoulder. I've had some concussions. I changed my neck curve 17 degrees in a crash. Yeah. I, uh, tell so, that story, please. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that was, that was you know, another Mount Hood story. There was this kind of like this um, pros from who might be listening to this from back in the, in the time will remember there was kind of this hole gap. It was like this this hole in the ground. You had to kind of gap over if you were going really, really fast okay. just before the log double at the bottom. And I'd done it a bunch of times. And I felt, you know, really pretty comfortable on it. And I think it was qualifying for one of the bigger events there, maybe the night before uh, the actual race. And, you know, I came toward it. I felt good. And I, I I went to jump over and I thought I'd cleared it. And my front tire just clipped the, the top of the this kind of like nub or root, like right at the other side. And I went over and I landed on my head. Mm. And it was a really hard impact. People said they felt the ground shake. And it was one of the few times where I fell in front of a lot of people and nobody cheered and nobody said a word. I mean, it was absolutely Ugh. silent when I got up. Yeah. And so I, that's, and I kind of looked around and people just had this kind of like shocked look on their face. Right. And like, how is he standing? Yeah. How is he standing up? You know? And I remember I rode to the bottom of the track and, um, that night I decided that I was going to race the next day. I thought I was, and I got up in the morning. I just thought, you know, you definitely hurt something. You definitely hurt something in your neck and that's not very smart to, to do anything else with yeah. this. So, I drove home and, um, I called my chiropractor here in Seattle and he, he, this was probably in, this was right before neck braces came out too. So it was probably like 2000. Yeah. Before the Liat brace came out. So 2007, 2008. And I said, Hey man, I think I might've broken something in my, in my neck, you know, a vertebrae or something. Is there any way you'd be willing to come in and take some x-rays? I mean, it was closed. It was the weekend and he's a good friend. So he did. And, uh, we'd been working on this thing together, um, to try to like actually correct my neck curve up to this point. My neck was kind of, I was getting like old man neck where my neck was getting curved 
forward a little bit. And so we've been doing like these this traction and stuff to try to get curvature in my, in my upper spine because I wasn't happy with my position on the bike. I couldn't lift my head as high as I wanted to. Gotcha. And so he did, anyway, he did this x-ray and he's like, Whoa, bro, your neck is perfect. Look at this. <laughs> and he like slapped a, he slapped a, my old x-ray up next to it. And then he slapped like a perfect spine up next to this one, which looked just like my spine at that point. Wow. So apparently I had made my neck curve absolutely perfect because I was off like 16 degrees. Now it was one degree past normal. Wow. All from one fall. And I mean, from it was stubbing in on your from head. just like landing. I mean, I was, you know, just what a lucky, lucky, lucky moment that was. Listeners, please don't try this at home. <laughs> absolutely not. And wear your neck brace anytime you have a full face helmet on. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, my neck hurt for a couple of years, but, uh, it was, it was a scary moment to just kind of realize, you know, I mean, you always think about things that could happen. And, and that was one of those moments where anything could have happened. So, yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So the, the time between racing and starting fluid ride, there was a, were there other iterations of fluid ride? Yeah. Prior yeah. to its current. There were. Yeah. I mean, it really, it all started, it started a long time ago. It started in 1997. So oh, I've been, wow. yeah, I've been going for, 21 years this is my oh, 20, okay. 21st year i didn't realize teaching. that started yeah. in 97 okay yeah so it, so a decade it, before you stopped racing yeah, you were teaching it, it actually spanned that, that whole time and okay. you know it also included um races putting on races yeah. doing a whole number of things working on a prosthetic project but as far as the instruction goes I wait, was, wait 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 <laughs> you can't gloss over started a prosthetic well project. i didn't i didn't actually start it i actually there was a guy who was doing it and <laughs> okay. i um I was married at the time and my wife and I created a nonprofit and actually helped him pursue his ideas behind this prosthetic leg. And it's the only prosthetic leg in the world that allows an amputee who has an amputation above what's called an AK above the knee mm -hmm. um, amputation to stand and pedal on a bicycle. And it all came about wow. because uh, Red Bull, I was, I was a Red Bull athlete that at the time and they said, Hey, we've got this guy we want you to work with. He's amazing. He's got one leg, but he just rips on a bike. And sure enough, I, w I went to teach the guy and yeah, he rips on the bike, but he couldn't stand up. And I kept saying, well, you know, stand up because you can't sit down over and you're going to go over the bars. Yeah. And he's like, man, there's nobody in the world with a missing knee who can stand up and balance their pedals on a bicycle. And I was super naive at the time. I'm like, well, that can't be that hard. I got all these parts at my shop, you know, like how, how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, of course there's this thing called the prosthetic industry here, you know, right. trying to make these sorts of things work. And, um, long story short, we worked, we ended up working together for probably six or seven years. And, um, thanks to, to my wife at the time, um, being able to like do all the admin stuff and then, uh, a connection that I made through a student at Weyerhaeuser, you know, in the timber industry, they have a lot of issues obviously with machinery and things like that. So they had a, a reason to want to become involved in a project like this. And they gave me basically a crew of engineers wow. once a week for a couple of years. And so I was able to take videos of able-bodied riders, videos of Brian Bartlett, who, the, who was the athlete I was working with, who now owns left side industries. Okay. Um, and we got got closer and closer and closer and, and Brian had these initial ideas which kind of evolved over time and ended up using a bicycle shock in the back of the knee not to create suspension but to create re recreate extension of the leg so, mm -hmm. so that the leg basically it runs off rubber bands and it, it will re-extend and it's been it was an incredible project I mean everybody we put on the leg immediately stood up and sprinted across the parking lot like literally everybody and it was like always like a tear-jerking moment because they they never thought they could so like road riders can use it motocross riders can use it uh, you know like if you were a jet skier any any like horse rider anything where you're posted up and you're trying to suspend your own body. And so it really 
is an amazing thing. And you can go, I think he's got a Facebook page. I think it's left side industries. You can check out more and there's some pretty awesome. cool, pretty oh. cool videos there. And it was funny. There's a, you know, um, many, many writers will know the, the name, um, Lars Sternberg and Lars and I were back on the East coast and we fitted up, um, we were doing like a number of different projects over there. And Brian was with us, Brian Bartlett of left side. And we fitted up this guy over there with this leg. And I remember we took off behind him down the hill and we were going to film him on his first run. And he was, damn near pulling both of us wow and we like we stopped and we're laughing looking at each other like what the who is this guy you know and anyway this guy now jumps like goes to highland park hits all the biggest gaps i mean he was like pro speed and brian's pretty darn close to pro speed or was pretty darn close to pro speed as and Hmm. um rode some major events uh you know so really that was a pretty cool project it was a bit of a side project it was never something that i wanted to profit from Uh but uh just another kind of um you know, one other one of those times where passion takes you, and and you just kind of have to kind of go with go with the flow. But to to bring it back to to the start of my teaching, yeah. um, that really started in 1997. I remember at the time I was winning, like in '96, '97, and and for a few years after that, I was winning a lot of the races, and um, and I really relied on on that money at the time. My life was pretty simple. I lived in my car with my dog a lot of the time, and I remember this guy coming up to me after the race and he said, Oh man, you know, like how do you, how did you go from, you know, being kind of just like an amateur rider and within like a couple of years, like all of a sudden now you're like the fastest guy. Like, how did you do that? And I, so I kind of just explained the theory I had behind riding and like how, how you corner quickly and uh, which is a little different than the way I teach it now. But anyway, I had this very well thought out plan of how, of why I was going to go faster and how I was going to go faster and how I was going to compete with the world's best riders. And it was all based off watching the world's best riders. And he said, well, you know, will you teach me? And I said, well, when, when am I going to teach you? Because back then we, we didn't have very many trails. So like you, you got to really ride real trails when you went to the race. I mean, yeah. that's where you saw all your friends because, yeah. you know, I think there was one trail at Tiger Mountain. There was hardly anything. I mean, you know, I used to train in, in urban settings. Yeah. And, uh, he said, well, I want you to, you, I want you to teach me during practice. And I said, well, you know, how can I teach you during practice? I got to win the race. I need yeah. the money. And he's uh, like, well, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, <laughs> and, uh, he said, how much, how much would you charge me for two hours of practice time? And, you know, that was valuable time b- back then to me. And, and, uh, so I said a hundred dollars, <laughs> you know, just in case I don't win the race, you know, I need to be, I need to make sure I'm, I'm patting my bet here. Yeah. And I remember I taught him and. He took off, I want to say, 20 seconds from his race time. Jesus. And he was just, like, elated. And really, at that point, that's kind of when my phone started to ring. You know, he started to tell people about it. And I started to realize, you know, maybe there's actually something here. And then after that, I got a little sidetracked. I opened a couple bike shops, did a a whole number of things. (laughs) And then everything eventually came back full circle one day when I woke up. I guess it was probably in, like... 2007 or 2008 was probably actually during the recession because the bike shop thing was, was more difficult during that time. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of woke up and realized I want a simple life again. I mean, I used to live in my car. I used to have the simple life. Yeah. I want elements of that back again. Mm -hmm. And so I remember just getting out a piece of paper and just kind of thinking about like, okay, if I didn't have all these bike shop expenses and I didn't have eight employees, because by that time I had two bike shops, what would, what would my life be like and what kind of money could I have? And, suddenly I just realized, wow, there's been something sitting right in front of you this whole time that you absolutely love. 
and you've been kind of pushing it under the rug and thinking that, oh, that can't possibly be a job because back then nobody was doing that. Yeah. So it was, I was really a, kind of pioneering that. I mean, mm-hmm. by sheer dumb luck, mm-hmm. but I was kind of pioneering that in some ways. And uh, yeah, when I had that, that moment of realization, that's just kind of when I decided, okay, I'm going to pack up the shops. And I was able to kind of like just basically transfer all my shop holdings to the guy who managed my shop and, and the, the mechanic. And they went on to start Big Tree Bikes. Oh. And so that's uh, that's kind of where Big Tree came from. They basically got my inventory and, and all that. Gotcha. Um, Zeb and Jerry, great guys. And uh, so that was a nice way to not have to like let my, my most loyal employees go. Yep. They, they got to be excited and start something new. And I got to be excited about like, wow, I'm free. I'm free. And I'm just going to be riding my bike more. And right around that time, there was something, there was a shift that occurred where I, I really started to enjoy teaching more than I started to enjoy riding for myself. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, when do you ever ride for yourself? You're always teaching. I'm like, really don't ride for myself that often. (laughs) And I started to realize that I, not only did I enjoy teaching more, but that I was learning an incredible amount as a rider. I mean, even, when I watch my videos of myself recently, you know, as an, as an older rider, it's like I'm riding pretty well. Like I'm riding much better than I did ever as a professional racer. And, wow. and that's really because I understand movement. I, I'm really aware of what I'm trying to do and, and I'm able to execute my techniques pretty well, even though I don't practice them at race speed all the time. Yeah. Um, and I still get a great deal of joy out of riding. Don't, don't get me wrong, but the teaching thing that the element of being able to, work with somebody, see the changes they make, see the sense of confidence build and grow within them. And, uh, the things that would typically happen that were off the bike for those people as they started to increase their confidence, increase their fitness, um, really to start to challenge their sense of what they thought was possible. Sure. And that's kind of become a kind of a theme for me in my life. Not, not only for the things I teach, but also for myself is like, you know, I think we all set an idea of what we think we can do and anything beyond that is for somebody else, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then hmm. as you, as you move through those barriers, as you, as you start to exceed your own self-perceived, your know, self-imposed limitations, I guess you could call them, you start to see more possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like that's something that keeps me constantly growing and challenging and cha- challenged, um, not only as a writer, but as a business person, um, and has really allowed me to, it's, it's kind of the theme behind the things that you'll probably see some things coming out in the future that I'm doing. And they're really all about that, about helping people surpass their own preset self-perceived limitations and just kind of blow the roof off the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just let's let them grow. Let's, you know? let's talk about that in terms of say, um, you're standing at the top of a new feature that scares mm-hmm. the hell out of you. Yeah. Um, maybe in, uh, from your own experiences or how you <laughs> yeah, teach or, of those. <laughs> all, or uh, <laughs> any combination thereof. Um, it sounds like you're talking about pushing through fear mm-hmm. and learning to deal with fear and things like that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And when I, you know, fear is, um, fear is one of those interesting things because we think that it's, it's almost like a bad thing that we, that we shouldn't have it, but it's really one of the things that's, innate in us that it's a survival instinct and it obviously goes back you know millennia to the time that that uh you know we were running from lions or whatever we were doing um but really when i talk about fear i kind of talk about it as a as a three-step 
process just to kind of like put it into more simple terms. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but the first one is kind of this, I, I call it impostorship where it's like, what the hell am I doing at the top of this feature or the top of this race run or in this mm-hmm. desk at this job? Who do or, I think? I am? Who do I think I am? Mm-hmm. And who did I tell people I was in order to get here? <laughs> you know? Um, so that's the first one. And it's kind of like this, it's almost like this rejection of self, kind of like this pushing, this pushing away a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, it can, it's a really difficult moment for people. It's a really difficult moment. Why am I the one who's scared? It's very alienating. You feel, you feel very alone in that moment mm-hmm. and you don't realize that other people standing right around you in the same group might have exactly the same <laughs> feeling or even more of that feeling. Right. Sure. And as a, as a downhill racer, we, we get, we, we're steeped in this, you know, we get plenty of practice with doing things that we didn't, we didn't think was possible. Facing scary stuff. Facing scary stuff. And then typically once you decide you're going to do something um, and you, you kind of get through, you bumble your way through, maybe you almost fall or um, you make a mistake or whatever, but you, you get through it and then you think, oh, okay, I kind of got through it. And then you have this time where it's the second phase, that kind of getting to know you kind of phase where it's kind of like, okay, maybe I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then the third phase is actually just like flow, just that connection with um, kind of the subconscious where your body's working um, almost independently of your brain Mm -hmm. and you're really just in the moment and you're really enjoying yourself. I think we probably all had this experience where whether it's a jump or trail or whatever, at least this is just on the bike or, you know, a job or whatever it is off the bike where you think about a trail, like somebody invites you to go ride a certain trail. I hate that trail. You know, like I can't jump these two jumps and I haven't been off the rock drop and I haven't done these things or the steep part scares me or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you, you, you go anyway and, eventually you kind of bumble your way through and then pretty soon you start to flow down that trail and then you call one of your buddies like hey let's go ride the such and such trail he's like fuck i hate that trail yeah. you know <laughs> and you, you don't really think about it because no longer is it like a you're not like trying to challenge that person you're just you actually have pure joy like you just yeah. want to go have a good experience on the bike with them you know yeah. <laughs> and they they haven't reached that third phase with it yet um sure. and so i think that i think for for people, for humans, I think, I don't know, it's, it's such a strong, um, metaphor for the rest of our life because we all want easy times. We all want like things to be kind of easy comfort, comfort, right? Yeah. But comfort isn't like, if you have to lie on the couch for six months, it doesn't feel like coming home from work and lying on the couch for an hour, you know, those are two different things, but it's the same couch. Right. And so I think this idea of, of, um, actually seeking out in the, in, in the kind of lives we live because we're, we're, we're no longer being chased by lions, you know, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but we, we seek these things out because they help us grow. They help us understand that we can, we can come up against things that we thought were insurmountable obstacles and we can persevere and we can actually start to enjoy something that previously was, was scary for us. And eventually that trail becomes boring or that jump becomes boring, right? Or that job becomes boring. And then we have to move on to the next thing. And I think if we get too centered on, on comfort, we actually get really uncomfortable. And, uh, I think that's one of the things people say, you know, why would you throw yourself down a mountain like that? That's dangerous. I mean, I have parents who contact me and say like, I, you know, I really don't want little Timmy doing this sport. Can you, can you give me some words of advice to talk him out of it? No, I absolutely can't, but I can give you some words of advice to talk you into supporting little Timmy, you know? Um, and I talk about those, those kinds of things, you know, not, not only are you learning to work through fears and, 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 um, set goals for yourself, but even if you are injured, you're learning to work back up 
to becoming healthy. And I think even the people who have been injured a few times, so long as the injuries aren't super, super bad as if you've been injured a few times, but you're an athlete, you're probably actually much healthier than somebody who's never been injured, who's lived a sedentary life. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's just something and that, that also creates goal setting. So yeah, of course you're going to get hurt. People say, well, isn't, isn't little Timmy going to get hurt? Yeah, of course little Timmy's going to get hurt. If he's going to mountain bike, part of the sport, it's Mm -hmm. part of the sport. He's going to get hurt. Um, but to a certain point, getting hurt should be a part of life. I mean, that's how yep. we come back from things. And I don't just mean physical injury. And so, like, that's how we come back better. That's how we come back stronger. That's how we test our metal. That's how we learn and grow as people. I mean, there are so many different formats for these lessons. But the bike is is uh, particularly suited. You know, there's that old saying, like, do something that scares you every day. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, if you're a mountain biker, unless you're riding the same trail every day, you got that covered, right? You like you can go out and scare yourself every Maybe day. Maybe today I won't do something that scares me for a change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> take a break. Take, take a break. So um, there was certainly plenty of that. Uh, those lessons learned. And it's interesting for me because I find I still have exactly the same emotion, the same reaction to fear I ever did. I mean, I teach this day in wow. and day out. and. Yeah. Uh, I can think of all these monkeys on my back right now in terms of trails or like going riding with, with my, I'm on the diamondback team. And like when I go, most of the athletes, not most, all the athletes on the team are a lot younger than me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> not using that as an excuse, but like, we'll go to like some new trail and there'll be some big gap. And I'm kind of like, uh. you know, I have that same sense of like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, how did I get here? And, and I still feel that sense of impostorship, like. Yeah. I shouldn't be here. And yeah. then if I do step up and jump the jump, then I, then I start to work through that process. I'm like, all oh, right, that's the thing you teach, yeah. you know? And yeah. so it's mm-hmm. funny, like even with verbalizing it as, as, as frequently as I do, I still don't remember that I teach that when I'm facing it. I mean, that's how consuming it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and with regard to that, so um, another coach that I, I follow, um, uh, name of Lee McCormick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lee McCormick talks about levels of anxiety as you stand at the top of um, of a feature, mm-hmm. and making a decision in the moment is is this anxiety acceptable, or is it going to lead to actions that are um, low brain based? Absolutely. Right. In other words, am I going to fall back on terrible uh, habits mm-hmm. that that don't work well, such as accidental supermans that's one i like to do yeah so i'm glad you brought that up because that's a big part of the fear talk because when i'm actually giving that talk it's usually based around a particular piece of terrain and and lee is great i mean i I read lee's book lee and brian's book and i was really pleased to see um his name on a video order of mine so nice that was really cool so i I, I like to think that we all share ideas and yeah you know we're all innovating but we're also all the ideas we have in the world come from somewhere right and so we're just like we're all just working to to make you know mountain bike instruction uh, better and better. And to Lee's point, when I'm actually there teaching on a terrain piece, the, the big the big thing that I'm trying to get riders to do is to be able to relax their upper body, especially men. I mean, mm-hmm. what that, that kind of like low brain thing that you just mentioned mm-hmm. about becoming kind of like, um, for me, that's kind of becoming like really muscularly tense. Mm-hmm. And I find that when that happens with riders, especially men, we have a lot of mass in our shoulders and our arms and things like that. So if we start to get our upper body really tense, that's really far above our axle line on our bicycle. So if you're about to say, for instance, ride down something steep or you're about to hit a, you know, a jump that has an aggressive lip to it or something and your upper body's really tense, mm-hmm. that's going to throw your set, your center of balance way off. And, you know, climbers call it being gripped where they're like stuck to the rock and they can't make their next move. Mm-hmm. And that idea of being gripped, that's kind of what I talk about. It's like, if you feel like, like almost kind of 
lightheaded and kind of like you're just in a really bad space, that's a sign that you, you know, unless you're a pro rider and you're at a world cup or something and you have to do it, then you do it. But other than that, that's a sign that you're not ready to do that, that particular day. And what I'll actually do with a rider, let's just say it's a a steep roll down. I'll take them to an, an easier roll down that has a really, a very similar feel has, you know, basically all the same components involved and I'll get them to do that a number of times. And then if they start to just feel really relaxed, I'll just say, Hey, if you, if this starts to feel really good and you just want to roll over to where we were just now, go for it. Or maybe it's another day where you're just like, today's the day I feel, I feel good. I feel a little bit more relaxed. And so for me, like that's a big part of it is to, to, to find a way to be able to relax. And then really that's what the best downhillers, the best jumpers share in common is that they, they actually carry a very relaxed upper body. Most of what I teach is actually movement down through the low body because we want to keep our center of mass fairly low. I mean, there are obviously important things we're doing with our upper body in terms of where we're pointing it and all that kind of thing. Sure. But relaxation is incredibly important. I mean, you see the, the kids who dirt jump really well. They're a pretty relaxed crew, you know? Yes. Yeah, they're <laughs> not exactly uptight. Right. They don't exactly look like bodybuilders, you know? No. So they're, they're pretty relaxed, pretty loose. Except for Jordy Lund. Yeah. <laughs> Jordy's an exception in every way. In every possible way, <laughs> apparently. It appears that yeah. way. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. That's that's great. So maybe we can um we can get into some specifics. Mm-hmm. Uh for example, one of the things that, that really made a difference in my writing was your um your uh weight distribution through the feet mm-hmm. concepts yeah. and specifically uh uh, forward and down, down and back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after you taught me that, mm-hmm. uh, I was fortunate enough to take two classes with you. Um, one with the Evergreen Group, and okay. then uh, my buddy Dennis, uh, Dennis and I, um, took uh, uh, just the two of us at at Duthi. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, yeah, I, I practice that con- frequently, mm-hmm. and and really think about it. And it made a huge difference in in my my turns. Yeah. So, so I mean, for me, like. That's really my bread and butter. That's really how I make my living is teaching footwork. And mm-hmm. fortunately for me, people are right-handed, left-handed, right-footed, left-footed. And we're, we don't, we have all these biases in our body. And, mm-hmm. um, the bicycle is, is a really unique machine. There's just so much to, to this part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like at a very basic level, when we're cornering, we want to be waiting our outside foot. It's like skiing or, or anything like that. And mm-hmm. if you look back at videos, like in the nineties and maybe up through, 2001 or 2002, maybe even a little later than that, 2005, you'll see people even at the pro level, um, in world cups and things like that, pushing their outside foot all the way down through turns. And then there was this kind of revolution that I, that I like to think came largely from writers like Sam Hill. He just came in in like in the 2004 to and on era and just changed the way people ride And, and people called it level feet. Yeah. You ride with level feet and, um, they don't, they, it, they, they have this, perception that they're riding with level feet but really what they're doing is they're controlling the zones between having their feet at what i call nine and three if your feet are you know basically horizontal um one foot in front and one foot in back so you're in between nine and three and six and twelve which is how we used to corner with the outside foot all the way down and really what i teach riders i I get this all the time from riders saying like oh i was online and you know some people say to like keep your feet level and some people say to get your outside foot down and for me it's the 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 best riders in the world are the people who have the most immaculate control of their footwork between the zones of nine and three and six and 12. So they're able to work all these varying degrees. And this foot height offset does amazing things for the way it allows our body to turn in the direction we want to go. And sometimes we don't need our outside foot all the way down. As a matter of fact, that can be too much and leave us a little too extended. Sure. Um, and so this 
is a really important part of riding. And what I started to realize was that, you know, well, A, most people lead with one foot forward. They don't switch feet. Most of us are either left foot forward or right foot forward. That would be rare. Yeah, it's it's rare for people to switch feet unless they're doing it um, as as kind of a mistake. There are a few pretty well thought out riders who do it, but it's it's super, super rare. And um, really what I started to realize is that most riders had a pretty strong what I call back foot turn. So they had good control over the back foot between the zones of nine and three and six and 12. And this isn't, you know, 100% true that, that people have a better back foot turn than front foot turn, but it's, it was generally true. And I I started to really notice that most people hold their more coordinated foot in the back mm-hmm. and it's more comfortable to control that those zones because it's right underneath us. If you think about like a weight line going down through your body, it goes more directly to that back foot and that front foot's just kind of out there. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of riders all the way up through the world cup level, I noticed were on their, on their front foot side, they were actually pushing on the incorrect foot slightly mm-hmm. and they were getting the bike to slide. It looked fast. It looked really like cool, like dirt's flying everywhere, yeah. but they're losing speed. They're not actually going as fast as they could mm-hmm. as if they were using the correct foot. And so I started coaching. I mean, I coach all levels of riders all the way up through world cup and I've never had somebody go away from a footwork class without being faster. A- absolutely. 100% of the time, every wow. single time. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of where I realized that there was some magic there. And then I started to kind of think about the physics that were involved with that control between nine and three and six and 12 and how we're kind of swinging, swinging the outside foot through the turn in correspondence to the shape of the turn. Mm -hmm. And I always like to talk about like in terms of lateral acceleration, we, people call it snapping a turn. You know, everybody wants to snap a turn where you get that brap and you just like fly out of the turn. It feels so good. (laughs) We get all that acceleration. And that's actually a, that's actually a phenomenon. Like that is, it doesn't just feel like your bike's accelerating. Your bike is accelerating. And, the thing that I like to use as an analogy that kind of like, I think everybody's had this experience in life is the, is the idea of a child on a swing. Mm. And so you think about a kid on a swing, it's one of the first things that we do by ourselves without mom or dad pushing us. Mm-hmm. And we go higher and higher and like, you know, kids get pretty pissed when they're learning to swing and you pull them off the swing. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. They're experiencing something that's like magic. You know, yeah. it's like, how is it that this little kid... <laughs> can do this without being pushed like what's going on there well what they're doing is that you have this fulcrum shape I don't, i'm not like a physics guy or anything but hopefully that's the right word you have like this this fulcrum like where the swing is swinging by itself you can imagine it's like a u-shape well the child pretty quickly learns that if at the bottom of that u-shape they push their feet through that they start to go higher and higher right so they start to go more and more well if they held their legs straight that would be like cornering with our outside foot all the way down all the time mm, you'd actually stop swinging right yep. so with our outside foot all the way down in a corner, we can create good control, but we're not going to create lateral acceleration. Mm. It doesn't mean it's always wrong. Sometimes we just need control and getting the outside foot down all the way is totally fine. But that's really like for me, like where the magic accelerator comes from on a bicycle. So as it turns out, the same system that allows the bicycle to be the most efficient human powered vehicle in the world, the pedal, you know, the drivetrain system is sure. the same system when we stop pedaling that allows it to be the fastest vehicle down a trail. That's uh-huh. why it's the fastest vehicle down a trail is because we have this ability to control our feet and move our faster body. Faster than motorcycles. Faster than a motorcycle down yeah. a trail. They've had numerous races. You can check it out online. It's actually yeah. pretty interesting to watch to watch the uh, like the you know, the motorcycle racers get get pissed when they get beaten by a, a downhiller. I mean, obviously only you know, on a downhill trail. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> 
but that's what allows that's what allows for it. I mean, yeah, we we've got great brakes, the bikes are light, but the reason they corner so well is we're actually able to move our hips and articulate our hips in the direction we want to go. If you think about standing on a motorcycle, your hips are stuck straight forward. Mm-hmm. And that's why you'll see motocross riders taking the inside foot off the peg when they corner because mm-hmm. they're trying to turn their hips. They can't actually turn their hips until they get foot height offset. Mm-hmm. And that's what footwork allows us to do is to put our outside foot slightly lower than our inside foot, yeah. which then allows us to turn our hips into the turn. So all these things awesome. work in combination. And the funny thing about it, people, you know, often say like, Oh man, you know, like I can't believe we still have chains on bicycles and all this, you know, like it's like the most archaic part of our bicycle, right? Yes. Like this, this old system. And derail you're shoving the chain laterally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so ancient mechanical system. And maybe some of that will change. But I remember, yeah. I remember when I first raced downhill, we used to say like, oh, I wonder if it'd be better if we just took our, our drive chains off and just like, you know, it's mostly downhill. If we just had foot pegs and we wouldn't have to deal with all this instability underneath us. Well, mastering that instability, because we're standing on a, you know, on a, on a balance system that's, that's got ball bearings around it. Once you master that, that's actually the articulating device that allows the vehicle to be so incredible. And, you know, we kind of take it for granted as we get more advanced, but it's really actually, when you think about it, it's a pretty masterful athletic feat to be able to Mm -hmm. stand Going down a technical trail, even just with our feet level, right? Yep. Because we're actually balancing over the bottom bracket. And then in addition to that, we have our pedal spindles, yeah. which are required to allow it to be a pedal driven machine. Sure. So those bearings in there allow us to move our feet and articulate our feet. Yeah. They all feel when you're starting, like you're, like you're walking on ice or something, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's like a difficult thing just to kind of start to like master stand sure. with level feet, um, you know, using your feet the correct way and all that. And then pretty soon you come to realize that the mastery of that is like a, for me anyway, as a coach is one of the biggest parts of everything else. And I call that base building because if you don't have that base underneath you, like mm-hmm. say you're just that you've got 70% of your weight on one foot all the time, mm-hmm. it's not going to work well in any situation. You hit a jump and you've got 70% of the weight on your one foot. Remember waiting mm-hmm. a foot is what causes us to turn. So yep. people all the time will contact me like, ah, you know, I think I'm all right with cornering, but every time I hit a jump, I turn left. I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> it's like, well, let's work on your cornering, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So, because that's really where we, where we start because we want to create that sense of equality before we move into things where like a sudden force, like a jump face sure. or something like that moves into our body mm-hmm. and we have, uh, we don't have equilibrium between our feet. Mm. So it's really important to create that, that sense of base. And then from there moving into more and more quote unquote advanced techniques and, and always coming back. I have some, um, really top level riders and it's interesting who like interesting how they will come back to me and like we'll do the i do the base building with them first we move on blah 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 blah, and then like three classes later like hey remember that cornering thing can we can we do that again (laughs) you know and so that that comes back all the time yeah so people want the basics and i what i've actually found is the higher level the higher the level of the rider yeah the more basic things they want to work on right because i mean they're, if, they're in touch with that reality they're in touch with that reality and they know where weight races are won and lost i mean if you think to you know any sport like wrestling take down take down take down you know football tackle 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 or whatever it is you know i didn't necessarily do those sports but sure. i know that the, those drills exist in the peewee leagues all the way through the nfl mm-hmm. and they're just doing those things over and over and people are like God, why are they doing the same thing for 20 years <laughs> well because that is the foundation of the sport and you know everything else can be built upon that but if you don't have that mm-hmm you're not going to be competitive. And so for me, 
that that laying of that foundation is is the most critical element and that's probably one of the reasons that i love my first classes with people because when they when i see that kind of light bulb moment we're like oh my gosh my bicycle can do that or wow i can ride like that i thought that was for somebody else like i didn't know i could snap a turn and so like when you see that that's when somebody i remember when i first snapped a turn i mean it was well after i turned pro like i used to just corner with my outside foot down Mm -hmm. and even my first feature length video I, i talk about having your outside foot all the way down. So you can, you can see the changes there. But I remember when I first started snapping turns, it was like literally like being a kid again, I would like get up and like tear the curtains open and be like, is it sunny? Hmm. Well, I don't care if it's sunny or not. I'm going to go ride. I'm going to go snap a turn. And it was like this, this rebirth of my own riding where I, when I really figured out how to corner well, and that for me ties the trail together so well, when you feel comfortable cornering in both directions. And some of you listening who maybe haven't thought about it, you might start to think about your favorite corners and you might realize, Oh, they all go in the same direction, uh, you know, interesting. And, and most people corner left better than right. Cause most of us are right-handed. Mm-hmm. So about, I think about 88% of people, I don't know the exact fact, something like that are, are right-handed and probably about 90% of those people turn left better than right. And that's, that's one of the things I work on when I'm working with say cyclocross racers, uh, cross country racers, things like that is being able to understand where to pass people as well as how to go faster as a downhill or as just as a recreational rider. Um, you, if you can learn to corner in the direction that most people don't corner, well, you can pass a lot of people in right-handed turns. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's been a really interesting thing as well as being able to, to use this to, to work across different mediums within the cycling industry. I teach road riders. I teach, I teach every, anybody in a, you know, in a two wheel, on a two wheel vehicle, um, non, non motorized two, two wheel vehicle, uh, to corner better. As long as you have a, you know, a free wheel, as long as you can pedal forward and backward, sure. then you have this ability. So, I mean, you can get on the cheapest bike there is out there. And if you have footwork, you can rip and you can take a, you know, $300, rental bike be careful you don't snap the fork off or something but you can take a 300 dollars rental bike and have a great time on it and feel have like, you seen feel the, like phil, the phil Komet's video where he takes a, i think it's a walmart bike He's oh just, yeah see yeah, how far yeah, you yeah. can push it <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing yeah that I mean, seems kind of sketchy i definitely want to have some good gear on it for that. scares the hell out of me yeah. watching it but it's hilarious and he's mm-hmm. he's a talented writer so. yeah <laughs> anyway he makes the most of a terrible bike and he's so generous he's like well you know it's not so bad <laughs> and i'm like uh you just risked your life it is now <laughs> <laughs> it is oh at the end that bike yeah. is wrecked yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway cool um yeah. Uh, obviously your your classes have have your coaching you you focus on turns and then your videos as well have mm, a lot turning of, information a lot a lot of them do yeah you can check a lot of that out online um there, there's a lot of uh, there's a skill shop um, on diamondback.com there's also stuff at fluidride.com um, okay. some free resources there and i'll I, link to to those things okay. in the show notes so. yeah cool so so yeah there's a lot of opportunities out there i mean and as for my videos, yeah, they've, they've done, they've done well. I have three feature length movies, which you can get on iTunes as well. Mm-hmm. And as well as on DVD through my website. And then I have free content. Diamondback's been super, super generous with me. I couldn't do what I do without them. They, the free I, videos are awesome. Yeah. They, I get you. a lot out of those. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. We had a half million views last year, which, wow. which for my little company, I was pretty, pretty that's, happy with. That's awesome. So, uh, and those are all, that's all courtesy of Diamondback. They pay for all, for all those videos. So all Wonderful. that video content you see is, is something that I'm super thankful um, to have their support in, in making those. Cause I, you know, I wouldn't probably make quite as many of them if, if sure. they weren't paying for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been a really cool opportunity. Every time I go to make a movie or anytime I make a, a short video or anytime I teach, it's always a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's one of the coolest things about teaching is that you, you really 
can't teach without learning. People ask questions mm -hmm. and you answer them and you learn things. And yeah. that's one of my favorite aspects about it. And I don't teach the same way. People will say, oh, you said this and this in your video. How come you're not talking about that? It's like, oh, that's right. I used to say that when I taught. It's, it's not incorrect. I just, you know, I teach all the time and, and things change. They yep. ho Hopefully things change. Hopefully things evolve. And there are Good even things. teaching evolves. It does, you know. And I think that that's something that's really important for teachers is to, I don't, I, I try to stay away from like just safeguarding all my information. I give everything out. I tell everybody, anybody who asks me a question, I tell them everything I know. If you take a teacher training from me, I'm going to give you every single tip that there is that I know. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't really believe in trying to like hold back information or copyright mm -hmm. information. There's nothing wrong with people who do that at all. Right. But for me, it's the the beauty of it is in the sharing and the learning comes from the sharing. And when I'm te teaching a big class or teaching a teacher training, somebody will ask a great question and I'll, you know, as you can tell, go on <laughs> ad nauseum with a response. <laughs> and then I'll say to the class, you know, you, you can really see how a question sparks a conversation right yeah. so yeah. instead of me just kind of saying this is right i'm the teacher blah 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 blah, and droning on and on and on it's like do you have questions boom mm -hmm. somebody asks a question now i'm answering the question now i'm in uncharted territory now i'm learning along with the rest of the group and then i might even ask other people like any other ideas about the answer mm -hmm. to this question you know cool. um and it's interesting when i'm answering questions i'll, I'll typically try to credit whomever it is mm -hmm. uh that I, got, learned it that, that I learned it from and because I like to remember those moments where I learned things. Sure. And so many of those are from students. Some of them are from people like Lee McCormick and other coaches. Um, but I don't think there's anything, as long as you're crediting people with information, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with sharing information yeah. that's agreed. You know, I mean, we all learn from somewhere. It's, yep. it's our job as a teacher to then go on and to disseminate that information and to give proper credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah, so. expansive, generous worldview. Mm -hmm. so that's, I think, I well, think that's, that's good stuff. It's a little bit selfish too, because that's actually where I get, that's where <laughs> actually where I learn, where I grow and kind of like where I, where I get my joy from teaching. And so, um, I think if I just kind of had a set, some set answers and there was no room for discussion, I think I would have probably mm. been bored and onto sure. something else pretty quickly. Sure. So that's, that's what keeps, keeps it kind of fertile ground for me. Yeah. Okay, so here's a here's a segue for you. <laughs> Speaking of uh, of questions, uh, I wanted to maybe break into something kind of specific about jumping. Mm -hmm. This is something I struggle with, and or, or that I've I have struggled with, and that um, some of my friends do as well. People who are better writers than me included. When you've got a jump line where most of the jumps are hipped to some extent, mm -hmm. right? Uh, bike control and articulation kind of solves itself, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've got a little lean and Etc. But bike control and articulation on a straight on a, on on straight jumps, mm -hmm. particularly something that leans more towards the jerk, dirt jump okay. end of it. Yeah, right. A lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, like what do you do? Like you're go, it's everything's straight. You mm -hmm. you know you 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 you're in the air and you've got to do something with the bike other than dead sailor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I just thought I'd see what, if you had any input on that. You know, it's interesting you say that because I always say that I think that that trails that have a lot of turns in them mm -hmm. at, when you're an advanced rider and like jump lines that have a lot of turns in them are actually easier yep. than, than straight jump lines. Mm -hmm. You would think, well, how could that be? You know, it takes something out of the equation if you don't have all those corners. Well, what we tend to do is we tend to kind of like fixate when we're going in a straight line and we tend to tense up because we're not in the flow. We're not moving. And one of the things that uh, uh, like a, a run that has jumps on it that's turning generously does for us is we're always moving our body side to side. And so we're not really 
frozen in a linear plane. And yeah. what can tend to happen is when we're just facing down a big jump and we have way too long to think about it yeah. is we get tension, right? We get mm. tense. Uh, and really that's that tension is what creates the problem. Okay. Yes. So what we want to be able to do in that situation is to start to be able to relax the upper body, to be able to make sure that we're standing perpendicular to sea level. And that's, that's just for me as a coach, that's just a truism as a rider and a coach is that when I'm jumping a bicycle, I want to stand perpendicular to sea level. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm standing upright. If you think about it, if you're walking up and down on foot over like mounds of dirt, there's nothing else we can do as a human, but stand perpendicular to sea level. If we don't, we fall down, right? We either fall over forward or we fall over backward. Yeah. And so it's the same way on a bicycle and we're blessed on a bicycle with this rotating bottom bracket and rotating pedal spindles. And so we're just going to, we just want to maintain a somewhat upright posture, um, standing up over the pedals and being super balanced over the bottom bracket. And then we want to start to try to invite a sense of relaxation into our arms and shoulders. And that's one thing that tends to go away for me and for many others on super straight jump lines where you're like, Oh God, dear God, these, you know, everything's just coming at you in a straight line. You think I'll just hang on and I can do this. But when our shoulders get too tense, that's actually when we start to get pulled around. Okay. The other thing that happens is because we have time for like our nerves to build when there's a lot of run up toward a jump is we have this tendency to scoot back a little bit on the bike, like just out of a little bit of fear, like, wow, this is a big jump. It's got a steep lip. I'm coming at it kind of fast. Maybe I'll just scoot back a little bit. When we do that, that straightens our arms a little bit. And you were just talking about kind of how the bike has to fly through an arc and kind of find its way down toward the landing. And so that arc requires the ability for my arms to extend. Like when I get to the top of the arc, if my arms are straight at the top of the arc, Mm. I'm in trouble. Yeah. So like if I scoot back on takeoff, which is the, which is the most common mistake riders make when they're, when there's a little bit of fear involved and fear is involved a little bit more on trails, which give us time to think, which are typically like straighter trails where the jumps are in a straight line. So we tend to get a bit more tension because we can see it in advance. We tend to maybe scoot back away from the jump a little bit, Mm -hmm. and that's going to start to pull us forward at the, at the crest of our flight arc. Mm -hmm. And that being pulled forward tells our brains something incorrect. It says, get back. Yeah. So the next jump, we get back a little more. We're like, God, I got back more, but I still got pulled forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more we get back inappropriately, the more we get pulled forward inappropriately. Because? Because our arms are getting extended. I call it being at the end of our rope. So if you think about it, if I'm standing on a bicycle, maybe I've got my elbows bent you know, somewhat. As I start to scoot my hips back, my yeah. elbows are going to straighten. So now I can fly up. That's totally fine. Yeah. But when my bike starts to dive down as it's going to do, and it should do, mm-hmm. it's going to pull me by my own extended arms. It's like somebody grabbing my hands and pulling me forward. Gotcha. So what really what we're working with is this limited amount of human travel in our arm range. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to always stay it within that travel zone and not get to what I call the end of our rope where our elbows are completely locked. I mean, there are moments where it's okay to be like that, but we don't want that to be, happening at the top of our flight arc. And (laughs) that's especially for less experienced riders. Like that's probably the number one mistake riders make is that they tend to back, back away into jumps. And that's my little mantra to myself. If I'm scared of a jump is just drive your knees and drive your knees. And the the reason I say drive your knees in is when we back away, the other thing that happens in addition to our arms becoming too extended is that we can actually end up in a situation where our knees are behind our ankles. Mm, Jesus. And we don't ever want to be like that. You can imagine trying to walk around on the ground with your knees behind your ankles. Yeah. You're going to fall over, right? <laughs> we can stand like that on a bike because we can hang onto the handlebars. Yeah. But it's not where we want to be. So whether we're cornering, whether we're jumping or whatever it is, the knees should always be driving in front of the ankle. We're bipedal humans. We're still bipedal when we're on a bicycle because we're standing up when we're jumping. We're standing up when we're downhilling or descending on a bicycle in general. Mm -hmm. We're we're very much bipedal beings 
on the bicycle. And so it's really critical that I don't out of fear back up so much that my kneecaps get slightly behind my ankles. Cause that's just not a good human posture for an athlete or for human in general. And in, at the same time that that's happening, the other result is that my arms are becoming too extended. Yeah. So what I have riders do is to maybe find a, a jump line that goes straight, try to stay as relaxed as they can. And then rather than like trying to do like a bar turn from your hands, think about just moving your shoulders, like, like just side to side, like just an inch or so. And just starting to bring that sense of relaxation. That's the same thing you're doing on like a line you were talking about, like a line that has like a lot of hips, like where the jumps are turning naturally. Like it's very natural to turn your body there because you're already in the act of turning. It's so interesting when you said that and, uh, listeners can't see this mm-hmm. but <laughs> you rotated your shoulders a little bit and i can see th- a thousand great riders doing that exact yeah, thing totally on a straight jump yeah it's just it, it's just you focus on things like feet and hands and, mm-hmm. and etc but it's it's a torso upper torso yeah it's, a, it's that body moving yeah i can't help but move when i sit here i'm riding my bike right. you know? i can even <laughs> tell if somebody's a good rider or not by the way they describe things uh-huh. and they, the way they move their body uh, during these kind of animated descriptions um <laughs> But okay. yeah, so one of the things I always say is like the, the scariest thing for like a pro rider to do off a jump is absolutely nothing. If you see a rider hit a giant gap and they just like went completely straight off it yeah. in like a in like a big race or in a big event, they're probably terrified. They're probably terrified, <laughs> you know. And the rest of us are like that's kind of like how we start jumping is like we want to just like we want everything to go straight, you know. Yeah. Well, it's not going to things don't stay straight if they start a little bit crooked. Mm. So the ability to create movement is incredibly important because if we're always in a state of movement, we can make up for any kind of little mistake on takeoff. And that's how pro riders are able to go so quickly is they're able to approach jumps with less than perfect takeoff position and just make motions and keep moving the body all the way through the air. You'll very rarely, if ever see a top world cup rider, not throw a quote unquote style off a jump in the middle of like the world's most important race. Well, Mm -hmm. That's not all just for showing off. Yeah, they want to look at it. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. They're moving. They're doing something functional, whether it's counter-directional steering, scrubbing a jump to stay low, or just making up for a small imperfection on the way they were balanced on, on takeoff. Lip. Yeah. I, I I like to imagine that there's no such thing as a perfect, uh, uh, perfect lip exit. Mm-hmm. Every time there's some minor inconsistency that, that you damned well better be able to... Yeah, absolutely. To correct for absolutely, and I think that air. that's where you know people have maybe a we all have I should say experiences where we, we had a less than perfect takeoff, and that actually creates a sense where we're like, <laughs> yeah, I can see you've had some. Um, that creates a situation where we become strong in our arms and strong in our shoulders, and we try to control the takeoff so it doesn't happen again. Oh, I had a bad experience. I better hang on and control this thing and not have that happen again. Well, that's going to happen again because you're hanging on too tightly. So it's really about kind of letting go a little bit with the arms and really finding that state of relaxation where your shoulders are free to move, where your torso is free to move a little bit. And, you know, that's really, again, like if you watch the world's best riders, you'll just notice they're, they're very rarely like completely stationary, especially in the air. They're always moving, especially off really big jumps. They're always doing something. Um, and yeah, there's all, all kinds of different things we can do, you know, to flight, affect flight arc, um, to affect distance, all kinds of things. And one of the things I think that is kind of a misnomer in jumping is that distance is directly related to speed. 
And I think that's kind of, it's just such an oversimplification. And I get this so frequently I when I'm teaching. I think it's a natural uh, uh, thought process. It is. To it, think oh, I need to go further, therefore I need to go faster. And that's what everybody says. Like, oh, I didn't quite clear that. I need to go faster next time. And, and that m- might well be the case. I mean, sure. you might need to go more quickly. But one of the most powerful forces is, is acceleration. Mm-hmm. Um, or deceleration. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about like a jump at a, at, at a same speed at either a constant velocity or while we're decelerating or while we're accelerating. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have three different outcomes. When you think about a motocross racer rolling the throttle on coming toward a jump. So if they if they roll the throttle on at 10 miles an hour and they hit the jump at 30 miles an hour, they're going to go a certain distance. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be the furthest distance that you could go as opposed to going 30 miles an hour at a constant velocity at that same jump. You would never jump that same distance. Mm-hmm. Or if you went from 60 miles an hour and were breaking and hit that jump at 30 miles an hour, you'd go even less far, right? And so this also, this goes hand in hand with that idea of fear, because one of the things that happens when I was talking about riders scooting back on the bicycle, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that creates deceleration into, into a jump phase is when we scoot back, we're actually not standing over our feet properly. We're not going to get acceleration out of the cup of the jump, out of that really nice shape on, on a well-made jump. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's really common with my teaching is I'll actually have riders slow down into a jump because they're going so quickly that they're intimidated and they're scooting back out of fear. Mm. And so I'll have them slow down a little bit and drive their kneecaps toward the jump very slightly, just driving the kneecaps in toward the jump face and to that improve bit of boost to improve acceleration. Mm. So they're really like moving into the, the cup of that jump and they're really like getting something out. I mean, if you listen to a really talented dirt jumper, dirt jumpers jump, you hear that. <laughs> and that's the sound of the tires accelerating. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, that's really what we're looking for is to use that um, that shape of the jump, the scoop. the scoop of the jump to start to get some accelerational force. And, and if we're sitting back and we're not, we're not over our bottom bracket and we're not perpendicular to sea level, the bicycle is actually going to decelerate. Our arms are going to straighten. We're going to get bucked forward when, when we fly through the top of the arc and our arms are too extended. We're off balance on our feet. A whole number of things are happening in a way that's that's suboptimal, and so oftentimes getting p- <laughs> sometimes very suboptimal. <laughs> that crash so, was suboptimal. <laughs> okay, sorry. So yeah, so like it's it's interesting. Like I love my Whistler camps for that reason. I teach up in Whistler pretty much all of July, and it's such a great place to just be able to go up and do re- you know repeat jump runs. And it's, it's such a common theme where I'll follow somebody down, whatever jump run it is, whether it's crank it up or a line or dirt merchant, um, when they're less than comfortable on it, they're scooting back, they're backing away from the jump. And at the bottom, they'll invariably, you know, give me an apology and say like, Hey man, sorry. You know, I was totally casing those jumps and sorry, that must've been uncomfortable. And I was like, no, I was totally fine. I jumped all those jumps. I'm like, well, weren't you following me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, how did you jump them if I wasn't able to jump them? Oh, I was accelerating into the jump. So I just, you know, give them an extra 10 feet leading into the jump and I kind of accelerate up on them, not necessarily from pedaling, yeah. but just from wanting to be there and like yep. driving into the jump. Mm. And there's, you know, all of us who have jumped enough kind of know that feeling of jumps we're comfortable with where you like, you want to be there. And then yeah. jumps where you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this <laughs> one. Right. And so when we get that, yeah, not so sure feeling that's when it we're translates typically, to body it, stuff. It, it translates to body position over the bicycle, but it also translates to creating a situation where the bicycle will either maybe maintain a constant velocity, but most likely decelerate. Gotcha. And so we're not going to get the distance we would if we drove our knees forward. And it's the same way when we're cornering, you know, when people want to get a lot of acceleration out of a corner, I have them drive their outside kneecap forward slightly. And that's basically getting them up over the pedal. It's getting you up over that sweet spot on the bike. And it's really allowing the bike to drive through the corner. Mm-hmm. So in much the same way and for much the same reason that we're able to snap a turn, we can get acceleration out of the cup of a jump. Now we're not using 
that offset foot height and stuff like that, obviously, when, when we're jumping. <laughs> but we are getting some of the same elements out of being able to really take advantage of the shape of the terrain that's underneath our feet. Sure. So, yeah. Awesome. That's valuable stuff. I'm, I, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> well, I almost didn't yeah. because I thought, well, it's kind of specific. But, but um, there's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but you don't use the word boost. Uh, and I thought the thing is dirt jumpers talk about that. I need more boost. I need to pop more. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And that's what they're talking about. I mean, so okay. you could, some people talk about it as preload. Okay. Some people talk about it as like boosting. Um, some people talk about pushing down it's into the like face a of the jump. Term, get higher. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. And like for me, like the, the, the time that I, where I go into more teaching preload, I mean, we're always going to be loading the bicycle in a jump face. I mean, there's no way we can absorb a whole jump face. I mean, if, if you can, it's a small jump and you're not going to go into the air because you just absorbed everything that it was trying to give you. If a jump face is really long, I find that as long as you're not just like collapsing when you hit it, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going to get like you're going to get preload. The bike is going to preload into this, the face of this wave that you're riding into. And in that instance, I don't talk about actively preloading. If you want more distance, you can firm your quads up a little bit more. And I call that being active in your legs. Mm-hmm. If you want it, if you think, wow, I'm going really fast. I might overjump this. You might not firm up quite as much. You might not quote unquote pop quite as much. Okay. Um, so like there, there's definitely that, but now when we get into more tricky situations, which are actually smaller jumps, and this is so counterintuitive when you get into smaller jumps, if you think about it, like a, like a little jump that's maybe four feet long, yeah. it's not even the wheelbase of a bike. Right. So your front wheels taking off and your back wheels still rolling on flat ground. Mm-hmm. So many people get hurt on small jumps mm-hmm. and they're like, wow. Yeah. You know, I was riding at Whistler and I was fine. And I got hurt on one of the kids jumps at the park, you know? And yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're more technical. And what I mean by that is that's where we really need our own preload. So like our own ability to understand when the front wheel is interfacing with a jump and we're going to firm up through our own legs and push down. By by our own, you mean versus the uh, the for, lip doing it yeah, for if, us. Yeah, if we wait for the lip to do it, the yeah. front wheel is in the air and the back wheel hits, yep. we're going to get bucked, right? Yeah. We're going to get pushed forward. We're going to get rotated forward. So sure. anytime we're either going really quickly off a jump that's like maybe a wheelbase long or just a little bit longer, but more particularly on one that's always like a, like shorter than a wheelbase in that instance, we need preload because essentially what we're doing is we're tricking the bicycle into thinking it's been on the jump. Like both wheels have been on the jump at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? That they've both been firming up into the jump at the same time. And speaking of the same time, that's one of the most, uh, you know, important elements of jumping well is that people often make the mistake of when the front wheel takes off, off a jump that they're like, okay, sweet. I'm in the air. And I get this all the time. Like, Hey, I'm in Whistler and I'm having fun. Um, I'm, I'm working on these jump lines, but I keep landing on my back wheel and I'm not clearing the jumps. What am I doing wrong? And I don't even have to see the ride to ride. I know exactly what they're doing wrong. I'll email them back. And I always get a nice email in response the next day when they're clearing the jumps. But essentially what's happening in that situation when you're landing on your back wheel and you're not getting the distance you want is you're not getting the back wheel to contact the lip of the jump. Mm -hmm. So we actually want both wheels to take off in the same place to track through the lip. Yeah, to take off in the same place, not at the same time. And one of my, the things that lands, one of the ideas, especially like when we're not looking at a video here and we're just talking, one of the ideas that lands really well with riders is the idea of ghost riding your bicycle through a jump, right? Mm. If you take your bicycle without the rider on it and you push it at a jump, it's probably going to jump pretty well. (laughs) And that's because the back wheel is actually going to contact the lip. Mm. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. that back wheel contacting the lip is what creates the arc. Without, without a ride on it, maybe it'll you know do too much and it'll sure. maybe it'll go over forward yeah, or whatever. Something. But that is actually what creates our arc in the air is the back wheel contacting the lip. And it's a little bit of a frightening thought when you first think of it. And when you first start practicing mm-hmm. it consciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a really important I've thing. It, yeah. Where where it's like, oh, I, I when I when I slow down mentally and mm-hmm. feel the rear wheel um actually feel it leave the lip yeah everything changes yes right and at yeah. first it's scary but then you start to go oh this is where it's at yeah right? exactly and that's actually what allows us to relax the upper body mm-hmm. because without that we're trying to create the air and that's another mistake i see a lot is where people are pulling up because they want more air really high level riders can kind of j-hop off a jump like they can kind of do that but at a general like general ridership level i teach people to kind of go in with with heavy legs and a relaxed upper body mm-hmm. um and we're not really trying to pull up the front end of the bike. We're just trying to, to coordinate our movements in conjunction with the shape of the jump to get the outcome we want. And um, just to kind of speak to that, I mean, there because there are a couple of big buckets that we've already covered them, but just kind of for, for those of you listening, you'll probably go, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's nice to know. <laughs> if you find yourself landing on the back wheel coming up short, it typically means the back wheel didn't contact the lip. Okay. If you find yourself coming down nose heavy a lot and feeling like you're going to get pulled forward, it typically means you scooted back on takeoff too much and you didn't stay standing up over your bottom bracket. You didn't stay perpendicular to sea level, whether it's from a bit of fear or just the thought that maybe you should scoot back because it's a steep lip. Mm-hmm. Um, so look, those are two big things that, that come up frequently. Um, the other one is that people say, oh, I lose my pedals in the air or I, I don't want to ride flat pedals because I'm, I'm scared of losing the pedals in the air. Mm-hmm. And really that has to do more with um, maybe trying to pull the bike up. And what I like to think of is that we're as the back wheels leaving the lip, that's the point at which our legs then become kind of neutral. And we just let the bicycle move up into our body because we've already established a situation where the flight arc should be correct. And so the, the bike's going to start to fly up into the body. We're receiving our landing gear up. Our legs are going from a more extended position and they're moving up into our body for flight. At that point, we shouldn't have done much with our arms. Our arms are relaxed. We can move our hands and shoulders and we can start to create some style and some movement, especially if it's a big jump. The bigger the jump is, the more important it is that we're able to do something in the air because the more a small miscalculation on takeoff has time to kick us in the butt if we're if we're not actively moving around and staying in a relaxed uh, in a relaxed state. Yeah, there's a lot to jumping. I mean, at the root of it, it's simple. Stay mm. stay perpendicular to sea level. You know, yeah. load load into the jump face when the back tire takes off off a lip. Let your landing gear up into your body. I mean, there's some simple things, but there are a lot of things that get in the way. And mostly, you know, I get this all the time with riders. They'll they'll email me or call me up and they'll say. God, I have this thing with my riding and I swear it's just in my head. I'm like, yeah, duh. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's all of us, right? Like <laughs> our bodies typically work. Okay. It's yeah. our head getting in the way of our body works or these preconceived notions that might be incorrect or even backward. I, I've had a few people contact me and say, yeah, I hear, you know, you're the, you're that guy who teaches everything backward from the way you think you should ride. Mm-hmm. And it works really well. <laughs> you know, like I teach people to move forward into steep descents, not get back and like yeah. all these different things. And, um, it all comes from the fact that we're human. Like we only have so much range in our body and we're really trying to, we're really trying to stay in a state where where we can exist as bipedal animals. We're really existing off our feet and that's where we do best as humans. And so like a lot of these movements are counterintuitive and that's one of the reasons that getting good coaching can just be not only save you, obviously, you know, a lot of, a lot of injury and stuff like that, but save you a lot of time in getting to be able to ride the kind of train you want. There are a lot of great coaches out there. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and you're one of them. Um, 
So, how about uh, what's going on with with Fluid Ride? What's coming up? Um, what's what have you got planned? Any any events? Any yeah. whatever? We got a lot of exciting stuff. I mean, one of the things that I've moved into a little bit is starting to to do some international tours. And so I think we're on our fifth year now of our Alps tour and it's just expanded and expanded and expanded. And this year we have three groups of 12 riders going to the Alps and I think we have three spots left. So which Alps? So good good point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we stay, we're based out of Chamonix or near Chamonix, a small town. um, So in France and uh, riders fly into Geneva, but we ride in France and Switzerland and Italy typically, typically on most trips, it kind of depends how the weather's moving as to where we're going to go. But all the rides are within 90 minutes of the chalet. Most of them are 30 or 40 minutes away from the chalet. And um, they're mostly uh, vertically assisted rides. So we don't really do like cross-country rides. We do a lot of extended kind of adventure rides okay. using trains, trams, gondolas, uh, buses, uh, oh, nice. anything. I mean, there's yeah. there's so much stuff over there. And that's been a really so much public transportation. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, we we kind of have a hard time with the trains because they have a, a bike maximum per train, and they're kind of onto us over there. So, um, <laughs> but uh, and we have two we have two vehicles, we have two vans and two trailers, and so and we have two professional ride leaders over there. And I do some of the ride leading as well now that I've been there a number of times. And so that's something that for me that I'm really passionate about. Um, that's when I get to, I don't teach there. I mean, I do, if somebody's struggling, I'll teach, give some pointers, uh-huh. but I get to like ride at the front of the group and just rip on my bike. It's so, more of an adventure experience. It's more of an adventure experience for sure. And it's just breathtakingly beautiful. You can see a photo on the wall over there. So my house is adorned with photos of the Alps. I mean, it's just, uh, it's such a magical wow. place. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a magical place. The mountains are so big. Is that online? That image? If you go to my, yeah, if you go look at my Alps page, you'll come up with some photos that are similar to, yeah. It's in the show notes, people. Yeah, there's some similar shots there. I mean, cool. It's amazing terrain. There's so much terrain there. So that's one of my favorite things that I'm, that I'm onto. I, I also have been fortunate enough to only be working eight months a year now in the Pacific Northwest anyway. And last winter, instead of going and going diving in Thailand, I went to the Andes. So uh, to Chile and Argentina. Mm. And so, I spent a couple months there working on a ride itinerary for the Andes, which is going to be most likely offered in February 2018. Just trying to decide if I'm going to hatch it this year or next. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to be starting something similar to my Alps trips in the Andes. And February 2018. Yes. What's the weather like up there? In- so that would be the end of summer. Okay. So they actually start their race season in the fall when it starts to cool down a little bit. So they start their race season end of February, beginning of March. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it can be a little dry that time of year. I might do something in November. The riding's really good at both times. It can just kind of like here, it can be good at late spring or early fall. Yeah, um, it does. It can be can be dry and dusty that time of year. But uh, it's really interesting to go there. I mean, I I love the people that I've been to Chile six times now. I think, wow. and uh, just awesome. such helpful, friendly, um, imaginative, resourceful people down there. Um, I got a lot of great friends there and think I've stayed like four nights in a hotel there out of the probably cumulative like months and months that I've been there over wow. time. You know, they just won't let you stay in a hotel. You know, nice. you have to come and barbecue with their family and yeah. drink Pisco with them and hang out with them. And wonderful. Uh, there's always somebody to take you riding every day, you know, which is great. Um, but we have a pretty, pretty cool situation there. A pretty cool, um, like we went to probably the, on this last trip, maybe six or seven different venues. And of those, I chose out probably two or three that will hit on a, on a given trip. Okay. And there's a lot of great riding there. 
and I'm excited to yeah to start showing that to people. So that's that's one thing that's happening with Fluid Ride is that I'm doing a bit of tour related stuff, and you'll see more and more stuff popping up around that. I'm not trying to make it into a dedicated tour business, but it's the reasons for it are kind of twofold. One is it gives me time where I'm not teaching and I'm just out riding my bike, and so that's a great opportunity for me. Uh, to do that. But it also gives people a goal, which is really also good for my business. It's good for pushing my business. People say, what do I need to do as a rider yep. to become good enough to go on your Alps trip? And it's like, well, maybe you should take some lessons and then sure. come to a Whistler camp yep. and then yeah. you'll be ready for the Alps. And yep. so it's a good feeder for my own business. And it's also a great, like kind of uh, this, you know, it's intimidating the first time you go there and the mountains are big. They don't really groom the trails. Like it's yeah. technical. And yeah, some um, of the best uh, heart in your throat uh, uh, helmet cam videos happen are shot in the Alps, right? Mm-hmm. Those super steep descents yeah, that yeah. people strap on a helmet cam. And it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, what if you've been there, if you've been to places like that, we have some some stuff like yeah. that here in the Cascades and yeah. the Olympics. You know, you go, yeah, it looks really scary from the helmet cam, but it's not that bad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some really challenging terrain there. The cool, like the big challenge has been with, with these trips and with these things just to find things that are, that, to find trails and trail systems that are approachable for people. So we don't have to wait until somebody's an expert rider to get there. And yeah. that's been kind of one of the biggest pushes for me as a rider. Like I well, like to so go. So what'd you say myself. advanced intermediate? Yeah. I mean, like okay. we used to say advanced to expert and okay. now we've discovered a number. I mean, there's so much riding there. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface after having gone there five times. Hmm. Sure. Um, but there are a number of bike parks that have opened, which have opened up and they have kind of like more flowy kind of trail systems. Okay. And, uh, there are just some more gentle grades in parts of the Alps. I mean, it's really interesting. Like when you just drive around the side of a mountain, it's going to turn from like this jagged peak into this rolling farmland almost. And so like there are chairlifts that are set up in places like that or, or routes by car or train or tram to the top of some mountains that are just like beautiful green rolling hills. Um, so there's a a really big variety in, in terms of the topography. There's a really big variety riding there in terms of the climate as well which is really interesting there's a mont blanc is the i believe the tallest mountain in the range there mont blanc massif which is which is clearly visible from our front patio at our chalet i mean it Mm. like towers above us right in front of us it's an incredible view i just it's different every day i never get tired of it but Mm. they one of the most amazing things about it is that they made it a tunnel underneath it that goes to Italy. Uh-huh. And so you can drive through and you, when you pop through this tunnel on the other side, it's surprising how different it is. It's much more arid environment. And so wow. if we have a lot of rain moving into the Valley, we'll yeah. often go ride in Pila or one of the areas that's, that's just, uh, th- uh, through that side. And one of the places that we went this year or, or this last year, where I hadn't been before was Latuil. So people who follow Enduro, and heard about the courses in Latwil. Yes, they are steep. Yes, they are technical. Uh-huh. I was challenged right to the edge on some of the, some of the race run uh, bits that I tried out. I was like, "Wow, that's really hard on a trail bike." Yeah, and, I mean, there was easier stuff in Latwil as well. So don't you know? Don't be too intimidated. But um, cool. there's something to challenge absolutely, absolutely every rider yeah. in, in that area. So yeah, so I'm loving that. Um, teaching more and more group clinics. Which is something I just found that, I mean, I love doing private instruction. I love connecting with people one-on-one or in, in very small group settings. But part of my goal is to be able to reach a lot of riders. And, I mean, that's part of the, the free videos, doing things like this and mm-hmm. being able to reach people maybe who aren't in my area. And in terms of people who are in my area, being able to do more group clinics allows me to teach more people per day and mm-hmm. uh, give help transform more people's riding, make it safer and all that kind of stuff. And it's also good for me economically to be able to 
uh, group people together. So yeah, more more group instruction has been something that's been happening for sure. Sure. And in terms of questions, taking a class in a group, there, mm-hmm. there's an element of advantage to that. Absolutely. Because because more people ask questions, you get to help, you get to share those details with more people at once. It's, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, I think it seems to me that that one-on-one coaching or two-on-one is probably might be better after you've you've had a group clinic. I don't yeah. know. Would you say that's true or is am I generalizing? You know, it's different for different people, but okay. I would say that I mean I would say that there's definitely some truth to that. Mm-hmm. But I get a lot of the people saying, wow, there's gonna be twelve people in that group. Isn't that an awful lot of riders? And then they leave the clinic and they're like, wow, that really changed my riding. So uh-huh. a couple things there, like you mentioned, like more people asking questions, more examples of what to do and maybe what not to do. Yeah. So like you're hearing me kind of like coaching very loudly and seeing these other people and you're going, oh yeah, I felt part of that in my writing or whatever the case might be. The other thing about private instruction is that it's your time and that's great, Mm -hmm. but you might steer me away from the things you're challenged by, right? And when you get into a group setting and it's like, hey, we're going over here. I mean, it's not going to be crazy out of people's realm. It might be psychologically for them, mm-hmm. but in terms of, you know, I make sure that, that it's appropriate for skill level within the group. But when we go to those places, suddenly there's this like, oh, well, if Johnny's doing it, then I'm going to do it kind of thing. And, you know, not in a foolish way, but more in a kind of like empowering kind of way. That's the nature of mountain biking, I think, mm-hmm. in general is, you know, you go out with your friends and somebody does something a little harder and you go, ah, it looks like I could try that. Yeah. I would imagine it in a, in a, in a group. Well, I know from experience in group uh, coaching and um classes those that happens as well absolutely i mean some of my most uh, memorable moments of learning were following lars or other riders who were better riders than me um i mean way better riders than me and uh watching what they were doing and actually just doing what they did and going wow okay i just learned something and it worked really well and i was maybe frightened for a moment but it worked out well and now i know something i didn't know before and so like for me like those are the times my riding is really elevated i've never actually um, had a coach or been coached and I'm not certified as a coach or anything like that. I just have always done it. I, I started doing it before there was a certification. And speaking of, of certifications, that's something else that I do, which is kind of new, which is my fit certification. It just means fluid ride instructor training. Okay. So I have two levels of that. The first one is ground-based skills. And then the second level is, uh, once you've, once you know how to teach the foundational skills is then like learning to teach jumping and more advanced drop skills and, and more advanced cornering drills and things like that. And so I've, I've been uh, doing this certification program for a couple of years right now. And uh, so far this year, I mean, it's springtime. It's just beginning of March and I've already certified 30 riders so far this year. Wow. So it's been something that's been really, really popular with people who want to be teachers or maybe people who are teaching um, at a volunteer level or even want to teach at a professional level. But also just with riders, because you get a lot of time with me asking questions. Everybody goes away a better rider, but also with a very in-depth understanding of the academic idea of how a bicycle is meant to be ridden. Sure. And so for a lot of people, that can be super empowering. Is like just knowing that what you're doing is actually correct so that when you go out and practice it, you're not practicing the wrong thing. And so that's been something that's been really rewarding and really fun is to teach people to teach a little bit and to kind of really gives me pause to reflect on like, why is it that I can teach effectively? Like, what are the things I'm bringing to the table? And then to like kind of back up and break it down, mm-hmm. teach people to teach from different perspectives, you know, audio, visual, kinesthetic, digital. So you can connect with a wider variety of people. Um, nice. So that's, is that group training? It's a group, it's a group training. Uh, 
Yeah, fit, fit. Fluid ride instructor training. Yeah, and you can find that online as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I do, you'll see on the website, we're just getting started with this. We have links to the people who have done the fit training if they want them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's maybe only a half dozen of them up so far. But once you've done a training with me, not only can you get on my website, and we, we have pretty good traffic on our website, but if your website's up to par, like if it's a good website, um, that's decided by somebody else, not me. Um, <laughs> if it's a clean website and it's all ready to go, then we'll actually cross-link that website. And then I also offer consultation for coaches to help their businesses grow, to understand exactly what I do. So I'll show them the back end of my website. I'll even show them the numbers, the money I make and what I do and how I do it. Awesome. And they pay for me my time by the hour to help build their businesses. And so for me, empowering people to teach doesn't take away from my business. It adds to the legitimacy of what we're all doing as coaches and it helps grow the pie. And that's, I think, what, one of the elements about this sport that's so cool is it's it's still a relatively new sport. I mean, it's growing, at least I feel like, it, at least in this area, it's growing super, super rapidly. I mean, it used to be rare to see a car with a bicycle in the back. Now, yeah. you're like, <laughs> they're everywhere. They're right? everywhere, yeah. yeah. And so... I think it's everywhere. It I think is. it's everywhere that it's growing. It's, it's especially in the globally. kind of more progressive riding era, mm-hmm. like maybe bicycle sales overall. I don't know about that, you know, commuters or whatever, but I, I do know that progressive riding is growing very, very quickly. And um, I think that, good instruction is a big part of that growth. And so I think it's really important for professional coaches to, to really kind of think about that and take that to mind and to not get too maybe territorial over what they're doing or maybe what the techniques they're teaching or whatever it might be. I think that, you know, with the internet age, you can't really hide very much and you're best off just to share. I mean, that's just my, yeah. that's just my own personal philosophy. And for me, it makes me just be able to live a life where I'm a lot more relaxed because sure. I'm not worried about somebody else taking my stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm giving my stuff away uh-huh. and people are responding by coming to me more and more. And that's what I found is the more I open up, the more I share, the more business I have. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been excited to kind of just see where that leads in life. Kind of that philosophy of not like, this is mine. This is mine. It's like, no, this is all of ours. Mm-hmm. And how can we share it in a way that, that, gives back to us all and i think that that uh that openness has served me well in my business yeah that's the that's the feeling that i got uh taking your your classes in the past was the 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 sense of generosity and and just a willingness to to share without without holding back you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't like well you have to you know maybe maybe if you take another class i'll show you know it was nothing like that it was it was just uh again very open so it's awesome thank you yeah good stuff man Okay. Anything else you want to touch on? No, I mean, I you know just <laughs> we've the, done it. Yeah, and I think I think we got it. I mean, I guess just a, a quick thanks to all the people who have supported me. You know, mm-hmm. you're all, some of you might be listening, and you know, it's taken a, it's taken a village to raise an idiot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No. Well, I know you've been um, involved with a lot of great, great people in the in the industry. Yeah, I have been. I have been, and like recently, I mean, Diamondback supported me incredibly. Rock Shocks and Stram have supported me, have supported me incredibly, and um, uh-huh. you know, thanks obviously to my parents for buying me a helmet and not uh, locking yeah. me in my room when they discovered my motorcycle. Taking away so. your motor- recycling your yeah. motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, and um, I guess you could say like uh, you know, keep an eye out for other things I'll be doing. So if you if you're into the stuff that I'm sharing in the mountain bike world, you, you'll see some other stuff coming out in the not too distant future that I'm going to be sharing as well. Other opportunities uh, to go scare yourself in a, with a, 
with, <laughs> with the guidance of somebody who's trained to help you. So, um, yeah, so lots of good stuff on the horizon. I'm super excited about uh, my writing and my life and um, sharing with people. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again to Simon Lawton for that generous interview. I had so much fun making it and editing it, and I hope you enjoyed it too. We look forward to hearing more from Simon in the near future. All right, a couple items of business. Uh, I need your help. I I need stars, man, stars uh, over at iTunes. I know it's weird, but iTunes is kind of the primary conduit for podcasts at this point moment in in podcast land and head to itunes if you don't have an account it just takes a couple of minutes to set up if you do have an account it just takes a couple seconds to mash on those stars man give me five stars if you like the show it'll make a huge difference in distribution and sharing and ranking for the show as i grow it and build it and that will make it possible to bring you more awesome interviews. Also, Facebook, facebook.com slash mtbjumper. Uh, that one, I know you've got an account for that one already. <laughs> Head there and mash on the like button and the share buttons. Um, share to your timeline your favorite episode, whether it's this one or Chris Olivier or Cat Sweet or the Northwest Cup guys. Uh, you know, share it. Help me get the word out so that more people can hear it and the MTB Jumper podcast will grow and get distribution. That's how it is these days. Social media. Also, Instagram. I'm just MTB Jumper podcast at Instagram. It's a little sparse there right now, but it will be growing. I will be sharing photographs, videos, and other awesomeness. So go ahead and follow that. I'll approve you. I'll follow back, etc. Let's see what else. Contact. If you have a question or if you have a suggestion for a guest, head to mtbjumper.com slash contact. You can send questions or comments, ideas, suggestions, suggestions for interviewees slash guests. I respond to everyone. So hit me up and I will get back to you. That's mtbjumper.com slash contact. Uh, Also, while you're there, sign up for my email newsletter. Every week, you'll get the link to the newest show. Also, I'm going to be giving stuff away, cool mountain biking stuff. That's coming. T-shirts, stickers, parts. It's it's happening. Go ahead and enter your email address. I don't spam. I don't share or sell emails. It's just a a once-a-week short email with all the cool stuff. All right, next week, phenomenal writer and MTB video content dynamo Eric Porter. We cover a wide range of topics, including valuable how-tos and more. Don't miss it. And go check out Eric Porter on Facebook. Follow him and check out his what he does. I think that'll get you stoked for that interview. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. In the meantime, make time to ride that bike. Mm-hmm.